I don't want this to become a podcast where we just complain about the weather. But frankly, it's summer in, in Australia and it's February and it's just stinking. It's like this every February. We just forget. We go into denial at around about August, September and go, nah, it's not that bad. But then in February, we remind ourselves how bad it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. But yes, we now have our aircon back. Oh, thank, thank God. God. <laughs> Unfortunately, the studio is not where the aircon is. So I, I, I have some things planned to make our recording situation a bit more flexible oh, so that we on. can record in other locations quite easily. Oh, okay, yes, yes. Yes. Sorry, I thought you were having yet another bitch about where we're recording this. No, <laughs> no. Just looking forward to my latest eBay purchase turning up so I can test it. <laughs> Shopaholic. <laughs> I really should declare this as a business so I can claim this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You should. Yeah. This is a business. We do spend time on this. We do work. I spend money on it, too. Yeah. So if you want to help us out. Yes. <laughs> with a bit of advice, we won't say no. <laughs> You're talking about advice meaning sponsorship. Well, sponsorship, getting money would be great, <laughs> but even someone who can send me a handy step-by-step -step guide of to how I could set this up oh, in a way boy. where I can <laughs> declare expenses, because I start looking and it just gets so deep so quick and I just go, I can't do this anymore. Uh, yeah. But That's, we will. Uh, yeah. We will do it. We will do it. <laughs> The podcast side right. of it is so much fun, though. So. It is, it is, it is. Shall we get on with that? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. What the... History, 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 history. Hello and welcome to What the History, your fortnightly bits of bizarre history <laughs> that will make you say What the History. <laughs> I am Trevor Holland. And I'm Susie Holland. <laughs> 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 Laughing at Trevor Holland. He's being way too enthusiastic. He is. He's, uh, he's this, really putting on a really good show here, guys. But it's a it's, great it's, show that we've got this episode. So it is. It, all it is. Fits it's interesting. Together. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Alrighty. So let's, without further ado, I will get on to mine. Okay. Now, this is a story that's interested me for many years since I read about it when I was a wee lass. And I must admit, I would love to have the same experience when I go to the location. I know that sounds really weird, but you know, stick with me on this, guys, okay? Um, now, what the history happened, I hear you ask. Well, two English women experienced, apparently, a slip back in time. Now, let me explain. In an event called the Mobley Jourdain Incident, also known as the Ghosts of the Trianon, which occurred at the Palace of Versailles, France, on the 10th of August, 1901. Two English women named Charlotte Mobley, who was the president of St. Hugh's College in Oxford, and Eleanor Jourdain, who was her assistant, were both, and I quote, of impeccable reputation, end quote, and they were visiting Versailles on a day trip. They both decided that Versailles itself was a bit boring, so they went for a walk through the gardens to visit the Trianons, as you do. Charlotte and Eleanor wanted to walk to the Grand Trianon, but when they got there, they found the gates closed. Undeterred, they decided to visit the Petit Trianon, which was built by Louis XV for his mistress, Madame de Pompadour, 
and was given to Marie Antoinette in 1744 by her husband, Louis XVI, upon their marriage. And we know how that turned out. Mm. They walked but missed the main avenue area. Now, apparently this is pretty easy to do as all the avenues intersect and they look alike and things. So, yeah. (laughs) The ladies kept walking and found a small lane which they followed. They passed a house and Charlotte noticed a stone cottage with a window where a woman was shaking out a white cloth and Eleanor saw an old farmhouse with an old-fashioned plough out the front. That's a bit strange. Despite seeing different things, both women stated later they experienced an overwhelming fear of dreariness and oppression. They both kept walking until they came upon two men, who Charlotte described firstly as gardeners and in a later statement... Quote, very dignified officials dressed in long greyish green coats with small three-cornered hats. End quote. The women asked the way to the Petit Trianon and the men advised them to go straight. As they walked, Eleanor stated that she saw a woman and a girl in a doorway of a cottage, both dressed in period clothing, with the woman passing a jug to the girl, but both were frozen as if they were wax sculptures. Charlotte said later that she never saw the cottage or the woman or girl, but felt a change in the atmosphere. And she's quoted as saying, Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like wood worked in tapestry. There were no effects of light or shade, and no wind stirred in the trees. End quote. The women continued walking and saw a man sitting in a garden kiosk with a dark complexion and a large hat and cloak, and Charlotte remarked later that, again I quote, his face was most repulsive, its expression odious, his complexion was dark and rough. Eleanor went further, stating, the man slowly turned his face, which was marked by smallpox, his complexion was very dark. His expression was evil and yet unseeing, and though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance to going past him. End quote. Mm. Ooh. Yeah, don't hold back, love. After passing this man, another man walked up to Charlotte and Eleanor, who was described as, quote, tall with large dark eyes and crisp curling black hair under a large sombrero hat, and told him the way to the Petit Trianon. The pair followed his directions and crossed a bridge at the Petit Trianon and passed a woman in a light summer white period costume dress, large sun hat with lots of fair hair, sketching in the gardens. However, only Charlotte saw this person and thought she was a tourist. Eleanor didn't see her. The two women left Versailles and later travelled back to England, confused and amazed at what they had witnessed and didn't mention it to anyone even to each other, until they had been back in England for a week. Both Charlotte and Eleanor thought that they had stumbled across a private party with everyone in period dress, but they couldn't find any evidence of this. They both went back to Versailles to see if they could find any trace of what they had witnessed, but they couldn't find anything, no cottages, no kiosk and no bridge near the Petit Trianon. They studied portraiture from the time of the costumes, and Charlotte was convinced that she had witnessed Queen Marie Antoinette sketching, and the man at the kiosk bore a resemblance to the Comte de Vaudreuil, excuse me if I got that wrong, who was a close companion of the Queen. Both women wrote a separate statement of what they saw and wrote a book in 1911 called An Adventure, under the pseudonyms of Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont. 
It was rather controversial and sceptics attempted to discredit the book, blaming lesbianism and female hysteria. Oh, my word. Oh, God, some people. Authors such as Jean de Cocteau and J.R.R. Tolkien took the book at its word and considered it, and I quote, highly important and authentic, end quote. The book was a hit regardless. Yay! There is a possible explanation. The biographer Philip Julian wrote in his 1965 biography of French poet Robert de Montesquieu that the poet had an apartment near Versailles and would often give parties in the gardens there, sometimes themed. Could this be what Charlotte and Eleanor saw? Or did they indeed slip back in time to pre-revolutionary France? But what of Charlotte witnessing one section and Eleanor not? Where did the bridge and kiosk go? Will we ever know? What though, indeed? Now, where did I put my passport? It's in the drawer. It's in the drawer. No, it's actually at the top. Ooh. Ooh, I moved it. Ooh, there we go. <laughs> Mustn't trust me. <laughs> yeah, you, you totally look like me and could pass as me. Yeah, good on you. A good point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so no, uh, no great um, fantastical travels under your passport. Then <laughs> they don't stamp them anymore. No, no journeys to previous unknown and mysterious locations. I know this is part of your segue, but it's too hot for me to understand what you're talking about. <laughs> Okay, oh, I'll, God, I'll just continue, oh, shall I? <laughs> we're really good here at What the History. We're really with it. <laughs> we're trying, yeah. we're trying, we're trying, we're trying. Mine starts with a bit of a segue in itself, but anyway. <laughs> when you think of Oliver Cromwell, what do you imagine? I see a man who toppled the monarchy and became a beacon for conservatism, fundamentalism and repression. He's I've... a boring old fart. Uh, the guy had an impact, and he did have some forward ideas, but I can't say approve of his methods. Nope. This is not about Cromwell, by the way. This is about his brother-in-law, Dr. John Wilkins, a man who had a vision that was incredibly progressive for the time. Born in Northamptonshire, UK, on 1st of January 1614, he showed an aptitude for the academic life from an early age. He enrolled at Magdalen College, Oxford, when he was 13, and graduated age 20 in 1634. He was ordained into the Church of England before travelling extensively to meet contemporary scholars of the time. In 1638, he published a work that combined popular theories of the time and his own observations, titled The Discovery of a New World, which looked at a universe that stretched infinitely rather than the conventional sphere that had its edge just beyond Saturn. In his book, he was bringing the works of Galileo and Copernicus to the front to argue against the 2,000-year-old theories based on the work of Aristotle. This was definitely groundbreaking stuff for the mid-17th century, and yet Dr. Wilkins had another trick up his sleeve. As an extension of the sea voyages of the likes of Sir Francis Drake, who had discovered new lands and people, Dr. Wilkins theorised that other planets, seen in in greater detail thanks to Galileo's telescope, could also be travelled to and would most likely contain life to encounter. He also had the intent to put his theory to the test. So it was that in 1640, a Jacobean clergyman and scientist put together a plan to send a ship full of men 
to the moon. Yay! How was he planning to do this? So glad you asked. <laughs> Dr. Wilkins believed that the Earth's magnetic field stretched a whole 20 miles, or about 32 kilometers, above the surface of the Earth. Once a ship broke through this field, then it would be able to simply float the remaining distance to the moon to meet the inhabitants. He estimated this journey would take around 180 days. Of course, you would need a ship capable of these feats. And in his book, Dr. Wilkins describes a flying chariot, in quotes there, which ran using springs and gears to power a set of feather-coated flapping wings. <laughs> these wings also had gunpowder-loaded boosters to help the chariot reach the heights required to break free of the Earth magnetic pull. So what would life be like for the intrepid lunar explorers on their way to the moon? First up, they wouldn't need much food. Dr. Wilkins explained that we need to eat due to gravity pulling food down through the body and causing the stomach to keep emptying. Once in space, this would no longer occur, meaning an astronaut would not need anywhere near as much food. Based on the experiences of mountaineers, Dr. Wilkins was aware of breathing difficulties that occurred at high altitudes. He explained that this was due to human lungs not being used to breathing the pure air that angels breathed. And so, in time, any traveller to the moon would adjust and have plenty of pure, breathable air for the trip. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for any potential explorers, many of Dr. Wilkins' theories were superseded. By 1670, a much more accurate picture of how gravity worked and the vastness of space was being built. And you had scientists like Robert Boyle and Robert Hooke demonstrating how space was actually a vacuum with no air. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> John... <laughs> I'm loving the, the rocket, the gunpowder boosters. Yep, yep. Oh, now, John Wilkins died in 1672. However, the events that occurred nearly 300 years later in 1969 showed that his dream did not die with him. I, I think in this case it's only fitting that we hear Dr. Wilkins' words about the possibilities of space travel. And I quote, this is an oldie English as well, so bear with me. In the first ages of the world, the islanders either thought themselves to be the only dwellers upon the earth, or else, if there were any other, yet they could not possibly conceive how they might have any commerce with them being severed by the deep and broad sea. But the aftertimes found out the invention of ships, in which notwithstanding none but some bold daring men durst venture, there being few so resolute as to commit themselves unto the vast ocean. And yet now how easy a thing is this, even to a timorous and cowardly nature. So perhaps there may be some other means invented for a conveyance to the moon. And though it may seem a terrible and impossible thing ever to pass through the vast spaces of the air, Yet no question there would be some men who durst venture this as well as the other. End quote. Wow. John Wilkins, your vision of space travel shall never be lost to what the history. Yay! Oh, Dr. Wilkins. Yeah. Interesting I'm... theories. Interesting. I like the idea that he had, thought, you know, 300 years before they went to the moon. Yeah. That he thought, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. I He's mean, good. 
This guy, his vision may not have been... Yeah, safe. Safe or <laughs> accurate, but given the information at the time, I, I think it's just an amazing that at a time, especially when uh, you did have the likes of Oliver Cromwell, mm. who shutting down was everything shutting down fun. everything and was focusing very much on a very uh, Puritan view mm. of the world, that his brother-in-law is, is floating such lofty and grand ideas. So it's pretty awesome. Good on you, John Wilkins. We like you. We do indeed. <laughs> and you know what? I also like everyone out there we who's do. listening to What Their History. We do. <laughs> and we would love to hear from you. So uh, you can easily get in touch with us. We are at wthpod.roofersproject.com if you want to find our homepage. You can find the What The History Podcast Facebook page. Uh, you can find us at pod underscore what on Twitter or by using the hashtag WTHpod. You can even send us an email to podcast at rufusproject.com or find the Rufus Project YouTube channel where enhanced version of our podcasts are now appearing. Yeah. Uh, if you also want to know more about the topics we've discussed tonight, there are links to our references just down below in the podcast description. Unless you're listening to the unless you're watching the enhanced podcast, in which case there is a link to a page with links <laughs> to our references. <laughs> There's links upon links upon There's, links. It's, it's Everywhere. linkception. And. <laughs> Linkapalooza. <laughs> it's a link party. And. Uh, oh, dearie, dearie me. The oh, heat is boiling in brains. Let's just stop there. Yes. Let's just stop there. So I hope you have enjoyed <laughs> this episode of What the History. And uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks' time with two more bizarre bits of history to make you say, What, what the, the History. history. Catch Good you then. Good night, everyone. Good night. We love you. Bye. Bye. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring's like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, oh.